You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and analyst at MLB.com, joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. Today is Friday, November 19th. 2021 had a lot of awards coming out this week we've had an interesting amount of moves and there's a couple of more newsy things we want to get to first matt i don't know if you know this today is something of a baseball holiday if you are a enormous roster nerd today is the deadline to add 40 players to your 40-man roster to protect them from the rule five draft i know how to start off a show with like (laughs) you know really getting the ticket sales going the clicks here it's holiday is a is it yeah i guess that's an interesting way of framing it but it is it is it it is important it is it is interesting the reason i bring this up you know to start the show is because i think because of this and i'll explain what it means in a second you may not care necessarily about seeing uh, you know a minor leader get added to some team's 40-man roster But what it means is you might see more moves than normal today because what's happening is some of these teams who want to add some of their prospects to the 40-man roster, the point being to protect them from the Rule 5 draft, which is tentatively scheduled for December 8th, you can only have, wait for it, 40 players on your 40-man roster. And you're going to see some moves from teams just trying to clear space because they want to protect some of their minor league prospects. So for example, the Rays made a couple of moves this week, neither of them hugely notable, but major league players, you know, they sent Lewis Head to Miami and Mike Brasso to Milwaukee to open up some spots. And there are, as I sit here today and look at it, six teams with full 40-man rosters. Arizona, Atlanta, Detroit, the Angels, the Marlins, the Yankees, another handful with 38 or 39. Most teams are in like the 36 to 37 player range. Oakland somehow only has 28 players on their 40-man roster. They don't have to clear any space. But it'll be interesting because if the Yankees or the Angels or any of those teams want to add uh, a player to their roster to protect them, they're going to have to make a move. Maybe that's just cutting someone free. But I, I think this is like the kind of time where you start seeing a lot of guys you sort of know getting traded. You know what I mean? Like, oh, that guy's, you know, fifth best reliever. I sort of remember him. They traded him just just to open up a spot more so than for the return they get. And I, I get that this is not going to lead, you know, Sports Center tonight or anything, but it's interesting to me because I like roster moves. Yeah, I think I think that's right. But it's also, you know, the Rule 5 draft is, is also one of those kind of things that generates a, sometimes generates a surprising amount of interest, even though it usually doesn't lead to many uh, significant uh, moves. Although, you know, for those who aren't familiar, basically players who are left unprotected uh, can be taken by another team. They have the thing is, if you're taken by another team in the Rule Five Draft, you have to remain on the 25 man roster for the entire 26. season. Next 26 man roster. Thank you. <laughs> the entire next season, or be offered back to the team that originally uh, that originally had you. And I guess there, I mean there actually have been a couple of Rule Five guys the last couple of years. Um, what's the guy? The guy from the Red Sox, the reliever, was a Rule Five oh, guy last year. Garrett Whitlock was. A yeah, Rule there's Five. Garrett Whitlock. That was like a good success story. Yeah. Uh, from from last year. You get one of those every couple of years, and obviously Shane like, Victorino was one, right? Uh, Johan Santana was one. Yeah. Josh Ro- Hamilton was one. Those Roberto are Clemente, like- most famously. <laughs> Dan Ugla, I'm pretty sure was as well. Yes. So you get you get some like some impact players uh, over the years, and so it's I think especially as teams become more in tune about you know pitchers and relievers and how they can transform players with certain stuff like Whitlock is kind of a perfect example of kind of what you, you might see more and more of these days. 
Yeah, that's right. So you're, you're going to see some, um, you know, top 100 prospects being added to the 40-man roster who's not there yet. So I think the Mariners already added Julio Rodriguez. This is mostly just we don't want someone to pick these guys because if you could go and grab Julio Rodriguez for the cost of like a $50,000 waiver claim, you would absolutely do so. You know, so you'll see like the Padres will add Mackenzie Gore and the Mets will add Ronnie Mauricio. And it, it mostly won't mean anything for their future necessarily, just that the team is actively saying we like this guy and we want to keep him and we don't want to risk him being lost. But I'm mostly interested to find out like what team Dylan Floro gets traded to <laughs> today, right? Because <laughs> Or or which like which non Will Smith reliever the Braves trade and not and Matzek too I guess but like that feels like I don't know Luke Jackson goes somewhere just over the spot totally but there's also the other side of this which is where teams will sometimes like they'll kind of take a calculated risk of like okay I've got this position player prospect who's like in high A maybe double A range who's really good but is not major league ready. So like, I'm going to take the chance that someone's not going to, I'm going to leave him unprotected because I don't really think another team is going to take him and put him on their 26 mound roster for an entire season. So there's a little bit of that where sometimes you'll see guys like, Oh, that guy's kind of interesting. He was a high draft pick or, you know, kind of got a big bonus a few years ago. And maybe he's been a little slower in development. There's a little bit of a game of chicken there as well. Uh, There's actually been like quite a bit of news this week. The Mets hired a general manager, which we'll get to in a second, but I want to start in the American League Central, where two different teams uh, have made or are about to made uh, make changes to their name and or uniforms. The big one is in Cleveland, and we'll get to that in a second. But I did want to point out something that Kansas City is doing that I really got a big kick out of. They tweeted the other day that they will be introducing, and I quote, new threads today. Haven't seen them. No idea what they look like. I don't think it's like a full rebrand. I'm guessing it's a new alternate uniform or whatever. But if you look at the picture they tweeted out, it was a, a player who was like backlit. There's lights, there's lights behind him. So the uniform is all dark. You can't read anything except for the KC on the hat. And a couple people on Twitter went and they took that and they tried to put it in Photoshop and fool with the lighting to see if they could see what it's going to look like. And if you go and see what they did, the, the Royals actually anticipated this would happen. And the uniform says, nice try, <laughs> which I thought that, it's like such a minor touch, but assuming that people would do that. So kudos to you, Royals. I'm kind of like watching Twitter, waiting to see if it's like, I don't know, an all powder blue head to toe, which I guess would be my guess. But the bigger news is that the Cleveland Guardians are finally official. And I'm really happy about this because I just like that it's official now. I don't have to like try not to say the old name or call them the Cleveland baseball team. Cleveland Guardians. Um, I'm happy it's here. And what I think would be really fun is if they win the World Series next year because they have the longest title drought in baseball. And wouldn't it be funny if the very first year they drop the old name and go with the Guardians, they win it. I think that would be a really interesting story. I've already been on the MLB shop looking at Guardians t-shirts. I'm not sure. I, I feel like I may have enough baseball t-shirts, so I think I may have to wait on this one. But they're, it's very, very tempting. I mean, they, they're good looking, but you know, very similar in style to you know what they used to be. There's a lot of like 1970s Cleveland imagery here. Um, but I, I was wondering, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this. So the, the team's in a weird spot, right? Like as always, as has been true since literally the beginning of recorded history, they've got good pitching and not enough hitting. That has always been the case. Do you think that this being the first year with the new name and the new branding kind of motivates them to make a bigger splash, just try, try to get things off on a, a good start? Like they're probably less likely to trade Jose Ramirez or do you think this not matters at all? 
Um, I think they're probably less likely to trade him for that reason. And, you know, you hope you get a full season of Shane Bieber. Like there is like the 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 kind of the guts of a, a decent team there, especially in probably what's become baseball's most, you know, open division. It feels like the every it's like the AL Central sort of cycles. Every team kind of gets a chance by the apple in that division. So I, I, I'm very curious to see what they do this offseason. They're actually one of these um, teams with an interesting 40-man roster decision today. They – uh, Mandy Bell, our, our Indians reporter, wrote a story about this. How they basically have like seven of their top thirty prospects who they have to decide on, and they've got only a fourth, four forty-man roster spot. So they they actually might make some moves today. Do you think anybody outside of Cleveland noticed how good Cal Quantrill was last year? In his final twenty starts, he had a two seventy-nine ERA, and I just don't think anybody paid attention because they weren't really in the race. And it seems like they invent pitchers out of nowhere pretty much every single year. Um, so I, I think it'll be interesting. They really need a catcher. I mean, you can't find a catcher. I'm writing about that now, but man, do they need a catcher? Uh, the final bit of news, and I'm really like pleasantly surprised how much news there has been <laughs> this week, is the Mets finally, 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 finally hired a general manager. And it's Billy Epler, who was the general manager of the Angels between 2015 and 2020. And the Angels of that period, I think, are mostly remembered for not ever getting Mike Trout to the playoffs. And so I don't know. I'm trying to like figure out how I, how I feel about this. Cause I think a lot of people are like, Oh man, another retread, like a guy who had the best player on the planet. And then also Shohei Otani, the other best player on the planet and couldn't get to the playoffs. And there's absolutely truth to that, right? Like he didn't do a great job of finding pitching. The, the farm system was never that good. And then when I went and looked through like what happened during his tenure, it, it made me think about it a little bit differently, right? Like, he did not sign Albert Pujols to that contract. That was before him. You know, the remainder of the Josh Hamilton deal uh, was before him. He was there when they convinced Otani to come. He was there when they extended Mike Trout and convinced him not to leave. The problem I found was that over all that time, he didn't make that many trades and none of them were that interesting. Like these are the most notable trades I could find from his tenure there. I traded for Andrelton Simmons for Sean Newcomb and Erica Ibar. Hey, fine. Uh, I traded for Justin Upton for basically nobody. That was great. And then the contract extension they signed him to less great. Got Patrick Sandoval, who's a pretty good young pitcher for Martin Maldonado. And that's kind of where my list stops. And I think we know that, you know, ownership there likes to play a really like uh, heavy handed role in going out and signing free agents. So I'm never sure how much to put on the general manager. But when you are the Mets, um, I'm not I'm not necessarily sure that just looking at the record the Angels posted over the years kind of tells the story about what he is or what he can do. I'm I'm kind of with you. Like I, it would not surprise me either way. If he if like he has success with the Mets, would not surprise me. If it you know kind of goes a similar way it did with the Angels, would also not surprise me. I'd say the one the one notable difference I would say between the two situations is um, the Mets right now are building out one of like they're really investing a lot in infrastructure on the analytics side. Um, they're hiring a lot of people. They brought over um, was it Ben Zosmer from the Dodgers last year to like run their R and D department, and I think he's. It seems like he's taking on a big role in that in that space, something the Angels have not had a reputation for. The second thing is the Mets have actually been a pretty good scouting and player development team the last few years. Um, and, they, and a lot of those the same players are still in place in terms of um, you know signing and developing players and bringing them to the big leagues. And in some ways, that's what oddly what the Mets have been best at the last few years. And a lot of those play, those people are still in place. Again, the, the Angels have not really been very good at developing players for a while now. So I think there are some things there that might work in his favor. I mean, he, it's funny. He's he's probably more experienced than 
the, he, he's definitely more experienced than Brody Van Wagenen as in the front office, and also as one more experienced than you know Jared Porter, Zach Scott, the two, the two guys the Mets hired last year. He's actually been a GM before. You know, he was a scout. He was an assistant general manager for the Yankees and was really well thought of for a long time before he got that Angels job. So I think that like. You know, it's not unheard of for a person to go in any role to kind of maybe struggle in their first time and then get another chance to do better with some of the things that they learn. So I think that, like, all things considered, it's actually like, okay, like, but there's, I think there's reason to believe, like, he might succeed, but like, you kind of never, it doesn't feel like, I understand why, like, Mets fans aren't like, oh my God, this is amazing, but it doesn't feel like a disaster to me. It's the opposite of exciting, but it may be competent. And competency, I think, is is undervalued. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and get to the award winners of the week. But before we do, I hate to backtrack too much, but I just saw this on Twitter and I thought it was really interesting. If you think about the uh, classic baseball movie, Major League, which is obviously about Cleveland under their former team name. I didn't realize this, but Citron Rosecrans from The Athletic just pointed it out on Twitter. The very first shot of that movie is showing the guardians of traffic. They're these like art deco statues on uh, one of the main bridges in Cleveland. That's what the team is named after. And while I feel like that movie is not going to necessarily hold up well in the future, because obviously it's like all the imagery we're trying to get past, the fact that the very first shot of that is The Guardian, I think is kind of cool. And maybe for at least the first three and a half seconds of that movie, you could say, oh yeah, The Guardians. And then there's like two more hours of the movie. We'll take a quick break and we'll come back and talk about all of the awards this week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from sky skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. All the major awards were given out this week. Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, Most Valuable Player, I guess also Manager of the Year, but I just cannot bring myself to talk about it because there's just no way to evaluate any of these guys. Um, what, before we get into each one, did you feel like the discourse this week was worse than usual when it came to awards? I don't know if I'm just specifically talking about the NL Cy Young, which like set off a firestorm about the uh, state of baseball. But man, there's a lot of arguing and less celebration about how great some of the players were. It's at least how I perceived it. And I think that's also that's that's part of the 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 sort of I think that's one of the, the downside of like awards and Hall of Fame debates can be a lot of fun, but it often it ends up seems like you have to kind of like trash someone to make your point. And then it's like, it's like well, kind of it's like really should we just be celebrating the as you said like celebrating the players who had great seasons? So I kind of I, I kind of get where you're coming from. I also think people, and I guess this is mostly fans of the the particular teams involved, but. 
people get so upset when a vote is not unanimous as though you get some sort of like extra special rookie of the year award. For example, in the National League, Jonathan India won the rookie of the year voting uh, and he had a really good year. So I have no complaints with him winning. He got 29 of the 31st place votes. The 30th vote came from Dan Samborski of Fangraphs, who went with Trevor Rogers of the Marlins, who also had a really good year. You know, a 264 ERA and 133 innings. Um, I think what got people really salty is that Dan is from Ohio and is part of the Cincinnati chapter of the PPWA. Although I'm, I'm almost positive he grew up an Orioles fan, so I don't think that has anything to do with it. And I think the worst take I saw about all of this was that Dan, or any voter really, who was like the one dissenting vote, did it to get attention. And I see that all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, well, first of all, none of this attention is good. Like he's getting torched <laughs> on Twitter constantly. And second of all, it's not like the voters pool their votes and everybody gets to see what everybody else does. He has he pretty clearly said, wow, I was kind of shocked it was just me, which I, I'm kind of in agreement on. Like I'm fine with India winning. I probably would have voted for Trevor Rogers. So <laughs> I sympathize uh, with Dan there. And then in the American League, uh, Randy Rosarena won with 22 of the first place votes. I hope he wins rookie of the year in each of the next three years. <laughs> it's only a joke if you realize Rosarina has been kicking around for a while and hadn't quite cleared <laughs> that rookie threshold. He just played in his third postseason. It's amazing. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I I think I would have voted for Wander Franco, but these are fine. I have no, I'm going to have a lot of lukewarm takes <laughs> on these awards. They're fine. It's all fine. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, um, I, I'm sort of with you. I mean, the thing about I would have voted for India just because Rogers barely pitched in the second half. Um, and but it wasn't like India had like one of these like transcendent, you know, Mike Trout, Aaron Judge kind of rookie seasons. It was like a good season. It was like kind of like a more classic, like, oh, he was rookie of the year, good season, you know? Like it's hard to be a superstar as a rookie. And he wasn't a superstar, he was a good player, and there wasn't really any sort of superstar rookie in the National League this year. That point you made about the um the Cincinnati chapter is one of the, it, it. It actually is one of the things that kind of bugs me about the awards voting. Um, I am a I am a member of the BBWA, but because I'm in the New York chapter, I, I never. There's so many members, I never get asked to um, vote for an award, and that's okay. Like I, I'll admit, I'm you know as far as the BBWA goes, I'm probably what you would consider like a, a backbencher, so to speak. I'm not uh, heavily like at the forefront uh, of of it. But I think that the, the the system every year, because it's you know it's designed to sort of be fair, right? It's two from every chapter. So the idea is that like, okay, we're not going to have East Coast bias or whatever, whatever may, may have you. And I feel like maybe in a previous era that made sense, but now it just seems like one thing that that always bothers me. It feels like we should, we are now so well informed. We can watch baseball anywhere on any coast at any time. We know the league way better than we did pre-internet. Or any anyone who's, who covers baseball. So we shouldn't have to worry so much about bias. The second which, when you only have 32 voters, it just increases the chance of one vote being a big deal about anything, right? So it, I kind of wish the, the voting pool was – I'm not saying everyone should vote on every award, but like why can't it be like four people per chapter or eight people per chapter? It just feels like you get this where it's suddenly like one vote it really stands out and people get angry at one person where if there's way more voters, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be as much of an impact. Not to mention the fact then you have this weird pressure where you feel like – Oh, I've got to, I, I like, there's an expectation that I'm from this chapter. I have to vote for this guy. And I kind of get it because if you don't vote for the player you cover, they might be like, why didn't you vote for me? Like, you're the only person, you cost me this award. You're the one person that didn't vote for me, you know? And this happens all the time. We say, like, oh, reporters are supposed to be unbiased. But like, I remember a few years ago when it was Buster Posey versus Molina for um, MVP, and Posey got 31st place votes, and the two first place votes he didn't get 
were from the St. Louis chapter. Like, and those went to, those went to Molina. So it's like, they're actually, when you, when you look at the patterns, that's what you see is you often see people like voting for their hometown guy. And I kind of get it. And I just wish that it was actually a bigger voting pool. So you wouldn't have these like things like, you know, Kate Upton freaking out at the one voter who left Justin Verlander off their ballot three years ago or five years ago and might have cost him the Cy Young Award. I'm like 99.8% sure that you are almost reciting like word for word one of my rants from like early in the season that I'm almost positive I said that because it's like, why are we doing this two voters per chapter thing anymore, especially because some chapters don't have enough people and then have to pull in like, I don't know, Ken Rosenthal to vote for wherever. Um, I I 100% agree with you. And it's funny because it's like, as you said, that process was put into place to try to like make sure there's no East Coast bias or whatever. But if you look at, let's say, National League MVP, both San Francisco writers voted for Brandon Crawford. <laughs> you know, it's like he had a great season. No disrespect to Brandon Crawford. Um, but I, I agree with you. I, I have advocated for a while that there should be way, way more voters because um, I don't think this process works that well. In the uh, let's go to the Cy Young. Let's do the easy one first. The easy one was the American League. My surprise here was not that Robbie Ray won. My surprise here was that he pounded Garrett Cole. 29 of the 30 first place votes. Sorry, Jason Beck, our friend from Detroit, who was the only one who voted for Garrett Cole, which, by the way, I think was defensible. I probably would have voted for Robbie Ray. I was just I was surprised that it was like by that much. But then again, I think you got to remember what a vote really is, right? It's not. 30 people getting together and discussing like who they think should win. It's 30 individual decisions. So even if all 30 of those people were 51 to 49 over one guy, that'll come out unanimous, but it can still be super close. If that makes any sense. I think that Robbie Ray coming back um, and winning the side after, you know, his issues over the previous years and throwing strikes is one of the coolest stories in baseball. I, I thought it was really awesome. And I, I'm trying to think of like a better platform year headed into free agency than that. And I'm coming up short because that was awesome. And I'm I'm really hoping you have something insightful to say in this because then we got to talk about the NL and that's just like a whole thing. Um, I'll say this: uh, I I too was absolutely shocked that it was um, 29 to one. Like like really, I did like a triple take. I think I would have voted for Cole. Um, so I was that's why I was kind of surprised by that. Partially, and like this is one of those where for me, if I were voting for a award, this would be one of those cases where it's just like. It's to me, it's so hard to separate the fact that just like I just think Cole's better, and that if you ask 30 managers, you have one game to win tomorrow. Who do you want to pick? Like on October 1st, if you were like, I could pick one player, pitcher to pitch an elimination game tomorrow, who am I picking, Garrett Cole or Robbie Ray? Would it be 30 for 30 for Cole? 28 to 2, right? Like, um, that's like that's sort of why it's hard to dissociate those self, like separate those things. The other thing I'll say is that. It's interesting, and this quarter speaks to how you get different by choosing only thirty voters. You get like very different mindsets. Like a lot of what powered Burns to win was sort of like fielding independent pitching and like looking at Fangraphs WAR, where you see like, oh, when it comes to like things that a pitcher can control, you know, he was by far the most dominant pitcher. Yes, he had fewer innings, but like when it comes to like strikeouts and 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 limiting home runs, like he had by far the best performance in terms of fielding independent pitching. But in the American League. Like the case, if you go, if you go, if you look at it from that perspective, then Cole or probably like Nathan Eovaldi should have won. <laughs> and Ray was, you know, in, in Fangraphs War, Ray was seventh in the American League in Fangraphs War behind Eovaldi, Cole, Dylan Cease, Jose Barrios, Frankie Montes, and Lucas Giolito. So it's crazy. It's interesting to me that like the forces that powered Burns in the NL 
but were basically a non-factor in the AL voting. Like he he didn't just win; he won in a landslide. Oh uh, no, I was surprised by that. Um, let's talk about the NL. Like, I'm super unexcited about this because it got so ugly. Let's start with this fact: the voting was really, really close. Burns got 12 first place votes. Wheeler got 12 first place votes. Scherzer picked up six. It ended up being one of the closest votes uh, in the history of the Cy Young voting. And just start there for a second. That is correct to me, right? Like you've got one guy who was more dominant in a smaller amount of innings. Like Burns, if you look at fielding pennant pitching, which I get it is not the end all be all. It you know looks at strikeouts and walks and home runs. He had like the second best fielding pennant pitching in the divisional era behind literally Pedro Martinez's best year. You know, what did he start the season with? Like 59 straight strikeouts before a walk. It's some of the most dominant pitching I've ever seen. And he just didn't throw as many innings. And partially, I think he missed some time on the COVID list. And the Brewers were using a six-man rotation for a while. And he wasn't going as deep into games. And, you know, Wheeler probably got pushed a little bit further because the Phillies bullpen was bad and Milwaukee's bullpen was good. None of this is like to take away from what Zach Wheeler did. I think that's like, I know this is lukewarm. I know this is tap water. I could have easily seen an argument for either one. If Wheeler had won, I'd have been like, yeah, hey, that's fine. He pitched well and he pitched a ton of innings. Cool. And Burns won and I was pleasantly surprised because he was so unbelievably dominantly good. I just don't see the argument for being upset that Burns won. That's that's the thing that gets me here. Like, I know he didn't throw as many innings, but people got a little angsty, let's say, by saying, well, this vote means that nerds say that innings don't matter. And it's like, hold up. If innings didn't matter, I'm voting for Jacob DeGrom, who was even better, but didn't throw that many. I mean, me, I'm voting for Josh Hader. I mean, if I want to be a total annoying turd, I would go find some guy who threw one inning and got three strikeouts and vote for that guy. You know what I mean? Like innings do matter. There is a limit. I don't I don't know if I could tell you where the limit is. I guess like offhand, I would say qualified for the ERA title around there. It's not like a great thing, but, you know, DeGrom, no matter how great he was, did not throw enough innings, right? And for me, for Burns to overcome the inning gap, he wouldn't have just had to have a pretty good season or a great season. He would have had to have had a monumentally amazing season, which he did. And if you look at, and this is another issue, there's multiple kinds of wins above replacement, which I hate. If you were to look at fan graphs, they're essentially tied, which makes sense. Burns is more dominating in fewer innings. Wheeler was less dominating in more innings. Cool. Baseball Prospectus has a version. Almost the exact same story. Fine with me. They should be tied. Baseball references pitcher war. I just I have a lot of issues with it. And it had Wheeler with a huge gap. And I I will explain why in a minute, why I disagree with the way that works. But I, I understand this is all confusing. My whole point here is that you could vote for either one and I would have gotten it. I, there's not a wrong answer here. I think it's 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 an, it's like an interesting debate, and I don't know why it had to become like hostile. <laughs> it's my like I w- personally I would have if I was voting I would have voted for Zach Wheeler. I think the innings, especially in a year when like innings are like right now, I actually think that like quality innings are like the hardest thing to find. So for me, if I were voting, I actually would have had probably had Wheeler one and Bueller two and Burns three, just because I think that like the forty inning gap is really really significant. But like a lot of smart people that I know and respect voted for Burns. And I understand, I mean, I understand the argument. I disagree with it, but like, that's okay. That's part of the fun. Like, you know, this is this debate. We can have a, a, a healthy debate, which is like supposed to be fun. That's cool. Like, let's have that discussion. I think this is one issue where you and I disagree on. I feel like you would have had Burns and like, that's cool. Yeah. You're wrong, but no. Cool. <laughs> I think the reason people got so angsty and I'm just sort of 
reading the tea leaves here is because we just went through an entire October of people losing their minds about the role of starting pitchers. And so I think a lot of people were maybe predisposed to be like, oh, yes, the guy who threw over 200 innings, my horse, like my king, I'm going to go with him. I have a question for you. You said you would have gone Wheeler over Bueller. And I want to know why. And it's not that I think you're wrong. It's just really funny to me. And and my friend Daniel Brim brought this up to me on Twitter. If we're really yelling about innings pitched and ERA, Bueller had a better ERA than Wheeler by kind of a lot. And he threw only four fewer innings. So why is why is Bueller not getting that if we're just talking about innings in ERA? Because the issue I'm having is people are saying winnings in ERA don't matter. And I'm like, yeah, but if you're saying that Wheeler has to win, then you're saying that's all that matters. Because I think, you know, I'm then at that point I'm looking under the hood a little bit deeper. And that's when I'm sort of like, okay, they're very close on like the raw, like what actually happened on the field. And so like, yes, I agree. Like that's very close. And then when I look under the hood to sort of what are the separators, and that's where Wheeler does have a little bit of an edge on Bueller in terms of like expected ERA and fielding independent pitching. And that's what would, what, what, what would sway me. Um, the last thing I want to say about this is as we've even just done on this show here, the, the entire argument about this, like all the air in the room was about innings versus FIP versus ERA, all this stuff is very funny to me that Julio Urias went 20 and three and finished seventh. <laughs> like for how many years of baseball history, is going 20 and three being the only 20 game winner guarantee you like a unanimous win and he had a great season but he wasn't even in this conversation uh, does that tell you a little bit about how far we've come over the last 10 15 20 years uh no question <laughs> no question um i said the last thing but i did want to mention uh one thing i'm looking at the new royals uniforms by the way they're very like 1980s they're kind of cool um the last thing i wanted to mention there's a, one of the arguments in favor of Wheeler is that he pitched in front of a deeply terrible Phillies defense, which is true. And that's part of why his baseball reference war is so high because he is he's getting a boost because they adjust for the fact he pitched in front of a lousy defense. But it's not consistent. So you can use StatCast to look at this. The defense behind Wheeler, the Phillies defense, is actually fantastic. And this has been an issue for Philly for the last couple of years. Like we've seen this with Nola and Nick Pavetta. It's just super inconsistent. So he's getting credit for pitching in front of a bad defense, except when he pitched, it was a good defense. So he's getting like double counted here. And I, I think that's, you know, we're getting like super deep into the sausage of how nerd stats are made. But I think that's that's kind of an issue. Anyway, I'm I am glad that is behind us and we can yell about something else next year. Hey, the MVP was a little simpler, right? Were you surprised Shohei Otani won unanimously? I wasn't. Uh, the only thing would, that surprised me is... Is that oh, go ahead? I was not surprised, although I, it was interesting to note he is the first unanimous MVP ever to come from a losing team, which I think is interesting. Is that true? I don't. Yep. I don't think I realized that. That's that's pretty fun. Uh, one voter did put Sal Perez second instead of Vlad Guerrero Jr., which I didn't totally agree with, but I'm not going to angst about you know anybody who is you know, second, third, fourth place, whatever. I mean. I know Blue Jays fans are a little upset by this, but it just, it doesn't matter. Like there is no argument you can make to put Guerrero over Otani. I think there's a better argument to make to put Semyon over Guerrero, which I wasn't going to do. You know, we've talked so much about Otani this year. It was cool to see him win unanimously. And I don't have the quote in front of me, but someone asked him like, how is he going to celebrate? And he's like, oh, a quiet night at home. I have to work out tomorrow. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, um, yeah. I think if... If I mean, thing is, Vlad got he was really hot until like September 10th, and then he really cooled off the last like three weeks. If Vlad had stayed really hot, 
the Angels had if, if Vlad had stayed really hot and the Angels and the Blue Jays had made the playoffs, Vlad would have gotten the first place votes. If he had won triple crown, it would have become like a thing again. But because he went cold the last three weeks and they didn't make the playoffs, it was obvious Otani was gonna win almost certainly unanimously, and that's what happened. Yeah, I really enjoyed the people saying, Well, you know, doesn't doesn't winning matter anymore? And I'm like, Yeah, the Blue Jays were great. They finished in fourth place. What are we really doing here? Come on, guys. Uh in the National League, Harper wins over Soto. Five different guys got first place votes. Uh, Harper got 17, Soto 6, Tatis 2, Crawford 4, and Trey Turner 1. I thought this was super close between Harper and Soto. I I probably would have gone Harper, but I didn't have a strong feeling for it. Mostly I got a kick that um, one San Francisco writer put Lamont Wade Jr. 10th, and this is fine. I don't care who he put 10th. Like It's not worth getting upset over any of that. Uh, Ryan Tapera got a mistaken 10th place vote. I just really enjoy that Lamont Wade will always have got an MVP vote next to him like he's i don't know what his future holds uh, the argument was partially that he had like the highest win probability added on uh, the giants which basically means not that he was the best player but that he was the most quote-unquote clutch player and i just i got a kick out of that and i'm i'm fine harper or soda you could have gone either way there's not a wrong answer there either uh yeah i i agree i think the um you know i thought harper was gonna win again and this was like i mean it was a weird this was a weird year for mvp where like None of the candidates were from teams that made made the uh, made the made the playoffs. So it's like that that kind of never happens. The cool the cool Bryce Harper thing is like I think it's this is one of like the kind of cooler kind of clubs to be in. Players to win an MVP with two different franchises, which Bryce Harper became the fifth player to do. The others are Barry Bonds with the Pirates and the Giants, Alex Rodriguez with the Rangers and the Yankees, Frank Robinson with the Reds and the Orioles, and Jimmy Fox with the A's and the Red Sox. Like that's a pretty good group to be in. <laughs> Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. Hey, there were actual roster moves this week. We'll talk about them. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Uh, There are actually some pretty considerable roster moves this week, mostly on the pitching side. I, I had a really interesting question posed to me. So Justin Verlander has returned to the Astros. And Steve Adams, who writes for MLB Trade Rumors, asked me this question. And I know it's like, you know, six of one, but it's interesting. Did he sign for one year and $25 million with a player option for $25 million for the next year? Or did he sign for two years and $50 million with an opt out? Yeah, I mean, this, I think this, I think this is one of those things like that was driven the last few years almost by like I think probably by agents because they want to rep- have the bigger number reported. Like that's how I've, it's 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 kind of a semantics thing. It's with with all of these, right? Now the difference is that a lot of times with these opt outs, they come in the middle of multi year deals. So I think that's kind of why they got started reported that year. Like you know, JD Martinez, he signed like five for one twenty five with opt outs after years two and three maybe two, three, and four. I forget exactly. So it was like easier to say than, oh, he signed, you know, two for 50 with a three-year option for 75 million on top of it, right? So this was a weird one because it was the rare, 
like one in one deal where this happened. But I think that like certainly if I'm Verlander's agent, I want to say we should report this as two for fifty with an opt out. But it didn't feel like that's the way it was reported. And maybe no, that's just because it was broken by his brother <laughs> who said like it's a one year deal worth whatever. And then like the option was reported, you know, secondarily. Whereas um Eduardo Rodriguez, it was reported five years seventy seven with an opt out after two. It was not reported two for twenty eight and then also three for forty nine if he wants to. Uh, so I guess we should start thinking about it as two for because Verlander has the is the ability. It's guaranteed fifty million if he wants it. It is entirely up to to him, right? So I guess in the sake of consistency, we should probably be going with the larger number and then just saying where the opt outs are. I guess um, just in terms of the signing, it's a lot of money for a guy who's going to be thirty nine years old hasn't and hasn't really pitched in two years. pitched in two years. <laughs> I think the point in his favor is that. He won the Cy Young in 2019. It's not like there were signs of decline. You know, this is not Zach Granke or, or Clayton Kershaw even where you're a little concerned about either performance or health. Um, it's not like no one's ever come back from a Tommy John before, although again, he's 39 years old. I think what this does is it makes the American League West like super interesting, right? Like the Astros were already good and having Verlander back will only help. The Rangers seem pretty clear they want to make a big signing or two. Um, the Angels seem pretty clear they want some pitching. The Mariners seem pretty clear they're trying to go for it. Oakland's super interesting too, just in a bad vibes kind of way. Uh, I think this division is going to look a lot different. And if you think about the Houston rotation, it's kind of like in the middle of a, a turnover of eras, right? Like, you know, uh, Morton's long gone and Keuchel's long gone and Cole's long gone. I don't really know what to make of Lance McCullers' health because he missed so much time in the playoffs. And then you've got the younger guys like Luis Garcia looks really good. I love Framber Valdez, Jose Urquidy. And now you got Justin Verlander back on top of that. That's like suddenly a really interesting and potentially quietly very good rotation. I think there's definitely some Astros fatigue, um, especially just like they've been good for a while now. And then also a lot of the play- we've, we've seen players leave. And so it sort of says like, okay, now this is going to change. But like, I'm kind of still still going into, you know, going into next year, especially if the A's kind of like sell off as has been rumored, like, I'm going into next year, kind of seeing them as the favorites again, um, and because I wouldn't, it also wouldn't shock me if they went out and made a move to get like a pretty good shortstop. I don't think they're going to bring back Correa, but like it wouldn't shock me if you know Trevor Story or Javi Baez ended up on on the on the Astros. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll see. I, I'm the I'm I was surprised on on the money here, guaranteeing fifty million for the, for him for two years. But you know, if, if you're a pitcher these days. Market's pretty good, especially if you're willing to sign a, a short-term deal. If you're if you're Max Scherzer right now, you're thinking, okay, if, he, if this guy's getting two for fifty, what am I getting? Javi Baez to Houston is a really interesting idea I hadn't thought of because he doesn't really fit their mold in that they like the the kind of hitters who can control the strike zone and, and make strong contact, which he obviously has a huge strikeout issue. But if you've got the rest of your team who are all like Michael Brantley types, maybe you can you know make that work. And I think I just like the idea of Baez and Altuve being middle infielder partners. Because that would be super fun. Uh, the Angels signed Noah Syndergaard for one year and $21 million. And talking about guys who throw hard and have barely pitched in two years, Noah Syndergaard. He turned down $18.4 million from the Mets for the qualifying offer. So not only does he make more money, he also gets to go back into the market next winter off presumably a healthy year without having to worry about the qualifying offer again, if that's still a thing that exists. I thought Keith Law made an interesting point, though. He signed for one year, right? His goal is to prove he's healthy and pitch well and score a big deal next winter. The Angels' goal is to do whatever is humanly possible to get Mike Trout and Shohei Otani in the playoffs. And I sort of wonder if those two things will kind of come into conflict 
if you need to maybe back off Syndergaard's health later in the year, but the Angels are trying to get into the playoffs for the first time in like 100 years. I think that's going to be interesting to watch. Yeah, this is why I didn't really like like the deal for the Angels, and this is why I thought like there was risk in them. This is the same reason I thought there was risk in the Mets offering the qualifying offer, which is like is is exactly the situation where where you'd almost want. I thought he would get one of those deals that you've seen some injured pitchers get in the past, where it's like okay, it's a one year deal, but with a lucrative option, like a lucrative club option, right? So that like if all goes well, you're going to be taken care of, or at least going to get you for another year. And then it is also in our interests and in your interests. To like sort of like help the team and stay healthy and, and, and we can kind of work together towards that goal because we, we're going to want you, for, you know, you're going to want to stay healthy and we're going to want you healthy for the following season, right? But like without that, considering the Angels also are giving up a, uh, a draft pick in this, um, I thought it was kind of, I, I for a team, that, I mean, talk about a team that not needs like decent innings like like they need like reliable innings like i get the i totally get the upside i think it's i i I thought it was a bit of a strange move for them personally um sort of i listen they need like six to eight new pitchers (laughs) and they need them immediately so if you can get you know 100 and something very good innings from Syndergaard, like i assume he'll be good if he's healthy i i'm fine with giving up the draft pick where i agree with you is i was surprised that they didn't build in any sort of extra safety net for themselves, you know, like the ability to have him for another year via team option or, or a second year or whatever, like, cause it's very likely he pitches there one year and then he leaves and it gives them less than 200 million and they give up a draft pick for it. That that's kind of where I was surprised. Uh, the first big move of the winter was actually also for a pitcher. It was in Detroit. Eduardo Rodriguez gets five years, 77 million. I can tell you exactly what struck me about this. This is kind of another sign of how far we have all come in the baseball world. Um, there was a time not that long ago where he would have signed and you'd have been able to make some real hay that is saying, Hey, you know, 474 ERA, but look under the hood, like a sky high batting average on balls in play. And the Red Sox defense was terrible. And the underlying stuff was like much better. Like it wouldn't have been that long ago where you could have put that out and had a cool, interesting take. And everybody had that take this time. Like even the most traditional media in the world would say, Oh yeah, don't worry about the 474 ERA. That's what stood out to me. Like it's, it's such a sea change in the way like everybody's looking at, at pitchers, not just teams, right? Like obviously the team didn't care about his ERA, but the fact that it was reported in almost everything I read that, you know, they're not worried about it. I found that really fascinating. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing about what's weird about Rodriguez is like, if you look at his ERA in over the last five years, it's really jumped around, right? Go back to 2016. It's we're going to go 2016 onward, 471. 419, 382, 381, 474. So it's basically it was like basically like started at 471, went down, and then went back went back up, right? And then this year, I mean, if you look at his expected ERA, it's basically been, you know, the stack has expected ERA, it's basically been flat. 350, 387, 368, 361, 350. So he's actually by expected ERA, he's been remarkably consistent. And if you assume that that's like who he is, you know, five for 77, considering he's what he is entering his age 29 season, like, all right, that seems you know pretty reasonable. Well, this is a Detroit team that has made it clear they think that they're ready to, I don't know if I, don't know if I want to say win next year, but at least contend and improve. And for all of the interesting young pitching they have, you know, Scooble and Mize and Manning, all unproven for the most part, no depth, depth whatsoever behind them. I and mean, they probably still need two more starting pitchers, but most likely they'll go out and try to get a shortstop. Uh, the Central is kind of fascinating to me because the White Sox, I think, are going to still be very good. Like, no reason to think otherwise. 
if Cleveland gets a bat, they'll still be interesting. Like the pitching is still very good. Uh, the Detroit is trying to get better. I don't know what to make of Minnesota. Like I kind of, I think I picked them to win the division last year and they fell apart and they're still very talented. I, I don't know what to make of them. And Kansas City, I don't know. I'm always lower on them than everybody else's. Like a lot of people thought they would contend last year and I didn't see it. I, I might pick them last in the division as things stand right now. And I feel like I'll be on an island there. But the Central, I don't know. What, how do you feel about that group right now? I mean, the, the thing about the Central, what's really interesting to me, or like I think it should say exciting to me, is like just seeing some of the, the, the talent that could arrive there next year. Like Bobby Wood Jr. is probably going to arrive next year in Kansas City, and he's like the kind of guy that could be a superstar from day one. The same goes for Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green in Detroit. So I think those, those three players – could really actually whether or not those like two teams are the two teams that actually emerge and win the division, just the 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 number of impact players that could emerge over the course of the season could actually have a could move the needle in terms of, you know, based on scheduling, who's playing, like the strength of the strength of the Tigers and Royals specifically could change dramatically over the course of the year. Uh, finally Brandon Bell accepted the qualifying offer for San Francisco. So he will be back there one year, eighteen point four million dollars. Everybody else rejected it. I I think I had expected maybe like two or three guys to take it. I'm going to pat myself on the back for a second and say that I never thought Chris Teller would take it. He didn't. Everybody gave me a hard time. I guess I didn't really think Michael Conforto was going to take it. I kind of thought he should have. The one that I was like kind of going back and forth a little bit on was Rysel Iglesias because, you know, relievers don't generally get, you know, long-term deals on top of qualifying offers, but he was so good last year. Um, and we're still at two, three weeks now into the offseason. Freddie Freeman hasn't signed with the Braves yet. And I don't want to say he's not going to, but it also sort of felt like either it was going to happen like real quick or take forever. And I guess we're leaning towards the latter one there. It's that's definitely could be one that lingers and will be very, very interesting. Two thoughts on, on Conforto and belt thing with Conforto, I think is um, realistically, he probably thinks like, you know what I could, when all said and done, I could still probably go out and get a one-year deal if not for the qualifying offer, you know, something close, which is we've seen players do that in the last few years where that's kind of happened. I think that happened with Marcelo Zuna a couple years ago where he basically waited it out and didn't really get any good offers, but he still was able to get that offer from Atlanta. And that's what he went and signed the one-year deal there uh, for 2020. So I think that like that you get you get that sometimes. So my guess is Conforto is probably kind of banking on that. Belt, I was kind of surprised he didn't get it didn't end up sounding like a two-year deal. You know, right. it's sort of like, hey, I'm going to basically like, let's let's basically try and ensure that like I finish my career in San Francisco, maybe with a lower lower average annual value kind of thing. So that's the only thing that kind of surprised me. As for as for Iglesias, I kind of feel like the, the Angels might have been sweating that one out a little bit at the end after they signed Syndergaard, where it's like, do we really want $40 million committed to Syndergaard and Iglesias next year? Is that really, you know? So I think there's probably a sigh of relief from the Angels standpoint that he didn't take it. We uh, have, let's see, 11-ish days left in November. I have no inside information on this, but I really feel like we're going to get one more big signing. And I don't know if it's a shortstop, maybe it's Semyon or Seager or somebody, but I, I feel like there's going to be one big thing where a guy's like, well, I don't know what the near-term future holds. I'm going to get my money as quickly as I can and not have to worry about like the uncertainty of the future. And I'm trying to figure out who the best name for that might be. And I feel like I don't know. Maybe it is Conforto, right? Like he, he's coming off such a weird year. I don't know. Maybe it's Simeon because, you know, he's a little older than the other guys. Who is it going to be? 
I don't know, but I think I totally agree with you. And I think that like, I've, I've probably, I know I've used this analogy in conversation before. I, I might've used it on this, this podcast before, but I think it really holds true is that like anyone who's ever played in a fantasy baseball auction knows that there's like a finite amount of money. Right. And like at the beginning when players just kind of get nominated, sometimes players you never thought were that good end up going for way more than they should just because like people have money at the beginning. And then at the end, players you just sort of like forgot to uh, nominate or were purposely not nominating, hopefully that you get them on a cut rate, like end up signing for a lot less. Like there's something to be said for trying to make yourself available when like the money's available. Because while it's unlike a fantasy auction, there's not a strict finite amount of money available. Teams have budgets and like, yeah, they may be a little elastic, but like it's not it's it's not necessarily that there's not that that much elasticity. So like for a lot of players, if you make yourself available, like this is when the, the, the money is to sign. Like Eduardo Rodriguez, I didn't think he was going to get, you know, that kind of deal. But by virtue, I think of sort of being aggressive and getting out there when teams still have money to spend, he did. Yeah, I think that's right. You look at what he got and there was really not much of a chance he was going to do better than that at any point. So as long as he was happy with going to Detroit, like, why why wait? I think that makes a lot of sense. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. We'll see you next week.